Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Friday, reflecting into Scripture for Sunday. This Sunday, we have the wonderful opportunity to reflect on the towering figures of Saints Peter and Paul, these two indispensable men who really are the uh, founding fathers of the church in so many ways. So tonight's subject matter is an opportunity to uh, re-engage past subject matter to a degree. We are not going to be able to get into the figures of Saints Peter and Paul in great depth. Um, Certainly we have already talked about this in the past. If you want to go to past uh, programs by way of podcast, you can Uh, Go to joelcraft.org and go to the church history section there in those first few months. We touched upon Peter and Paul quite a bit. So anyhow, what we're going to do today is I will offer up a a brief bio and summary of of these men. I will primarily draw from uh, Benedict XVI, and then we will get into the gospel, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, offer up a brief reflection there, and then I'm going to make a connection with with those series of verses there in Matthew chapter 16, with some important verses in Galatians chapter 1, to to make a connection, I believe a very important connection as it relates to uh, Peter and Paul. So with that, uh, what can we say as it relates to Peter the fisherman? Well, after Jesus, Peter is the figure best known and by far most frequently cited in the New Testament writings. In fact, he is mentioned over 150 times with the nickname of Petros, right, or Rock. We'll be reading about that name here in a bit, which translates uh, the Aramaic name Jesus gave him directly, right, Kephos, and that name is attested to on nine separate occasions, most notably in Paul's letters. And then, of course, we have the name Simon, up to 75 times, and then Simeon twice, all, of course, relating to this uh, great figure of Peter. So he is mentioned three more times, three more times than any other apostle in the New Testament. Uh, Historically, who is Peter? Well, uh, he is the son of John um, from Bethsaida, a little town to the east of the Sea of Galilee, from which Philip also came, and, of course, Andrew, the brother of Simon, We know that from Scripture, he spoke with a Galilean accent, huh? And like his brother, he too was, of course, a fisherman with the family of Zebedee, uh, the father of James and John, the two other apostles um, of note from that area. We also know that he ran a small fishing business on the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, So we can conclude out from that that he would have been reasonably well off and was motivated by a sincere interest in religion, by a desire for God. He wanted God to intervene in the world, a desire that would have impelled him to go with his brother as far as Judea to hear the preaching of the Baptist. Okay, again, 
What we are talking about right now as it relates to Simon, as it relates to Peter, is what comes to us from sacred scripture and the conclusions that we can draw from scripture. We certainly know that he was a believing and practicing Jew who trusted in the active presence of God in his people's history, and that he grieved not to see God's powerful action in the events he was witnessing during the time of Christ. We also know that he was married, and his mother-in-law, whom Jesus uh, would one day heal, right, uh, lived in the city of Capernaum, in the house where Simon also stayed when he was in that town. Now, the Gospels tell us, as it relates to Peter, that he was one of the first four disciples of the Nazarene, huh? to whom a fifth was added uh, called Levi. Now, there's something interesting to note as we're talking about this, specific to Peter. You know, Jesus went from five disciples to 12. The newness of the mission would become evident in that moment. Why? Because historically speaking, every rabbi would have five disciples. So the Gospels, the evangelists, they make note Christ called his five. Certainly he would have. He was a rabbi. But then he goes to 12. So the newness of his mission became evident in that number. huh? He was not one of the numerous rabbis, but had come to gather together the new Israel, symbolized by the number 12, the number of the tribes of Israel. So here you have the 12 tribes of Israel overseeing the Old Testament church, and now the 12 apostles overseeing the New Testament church. They become the 12 foundation stones. Now, in regard to Peter's call, it happened on an ordinary day while Peter was busy with his fisherman's tasks. Huh? There was Jesus at the lake of, of Gennesaret, and crowds had gathered around him to listen to him. The size of his audience probably created a certain discomfort, huh? But the teacher saw two boats moored by the shore. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. He then did something that would change history as we know it, and especially for the man, Simon. He asked permission to board the boat and requested him to put out a little from the land. Sitting On that improvised seat, he began to teach the crowds from the boat. Thus we can say, and this is Pope Benedict here, huh? That the boat of Peter becomes the chair of Jesus. I love that. So when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, what? If you were to go to Luke 5, 4, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What was Simon's response? Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Jesus, a carpenter, was not a skilled fisherman. Think about this critically here for a second. Why would Peter respond that way if he was not moved by that encounter with our Lord? Jesus is a carpenter, not a fisherman. Yet, Simon the fisherman trusts this rabbi who did not give him answers, but ultimately required him to trust him. His reaction to the miraculous catch showed his amazement and fear. In that wonderful verse, chapter 5, verse 8, Depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, when you go through those verses there in the Gospel of Luke, it's most striking because what we can begin to glean from the text is the profound encounter that took place between Jesus and Simon. So Jesus replied, out from that, depart from me, from my, I am a sinful man, O Lord, by inviting him to trust and to be open to a project that would surpass all his expectations. Do not be afraid, henceforth, he says to Peter, you will be catching men. He accepts this surprising call and he lets himself be involved in this great adventure. Amen. And so it is, my friends, when we say yes to that encounter with Jesus, he will lead us upon a great adventure, something that would surpass all of our expectations, all of our hopes, dreams, and wonders. That is the beauty of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful story. I I love it because ultimately it really highlights that power behind having a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And so there is another on this great solemnity, and that is Paul, a man that St. John Chrysostom praised as a superior even to many angels and archangels. Dante once called him, and I love this, a vessel of election. Many have called him the 13th apostle, the first after the only. Okay, so certainly Paul in the mind of the early church was very important, of course, on the hills of his many great missionary journeys. Paul studied uh, the roots of Mosaic law and the footsteps of the much-talked-about Rabbi Gamaliel, a man that we meet in Acts 5. Rabbi Gamaliel was the rabbi of rabbis. Um, he was the master rabbi, huh? It was said that when Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah died. I mean, what kind of affirmation is that? Wow, I mean, he was the rabbi of rabbis. And why this is important is because Saul of Tarsus, who we know as St. Paul, was his prized pupil. Okay, so he also learned a manual and common trade, tent making, which later permits him to provide personally for his own support huh, without being a weight on the churches. In fact, if you were to go into Acts and into his um, first and second letter to the church of Corinth, he, he talks about this. Now, for Paul, it was decisive for him to know the community of those who called themselves disciples of Jesus. You know, through them, he came to know a new faith, a new way, as it was called. That place is not so much the law of God at the center, but rather the person of Jesus crucified and risen to whom he was now linked to. We know the great story, that great encounter that took place in, in Acts 9, that wonderful encounter where once again, in that encounter, we have a man who has a new vision and who is willing to take on this new great adventure, uncalculated, unmeasured, simply giving our Lord his yes. We read in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, that it was on the road to Damascus 
that Christ, he said, Christ made me his own. That's beautiful. You know, I, I don't want to get too far into Paul without reading the Gospel of Matthew because I really do want to get into Galatians. So what I'm going to do is we'll talk more about Paul here in a bit. I want to speak uh, to Matthew 16, some key pieces there, and make some very important connections between Peter and Paul, especially on this solemnity that focuses in on uh, why these two men are the indispensable figures in the church. So, so with that, I will read Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, our gospel for this great solemnity. If you have your Bibles out there, if you want to pull them out. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so I want to focus in on these words, blessed are you, okay, and flesh and blood. So how are we to in interpret this text? Well, Jesus blesses Peter and ultimately elevates him to be the chief patriarch of the new covenant, this new dispensation of grace, this new family bond, we can already begin to appreciate parallels between Genesis and our Lord's words to Peter and how they suggest that Peter assumes a role in salvation history similar to that of Abraham. What do I mean? If you were to go into Genesis chapter 14, verse 19, both are blessed by God. If you were to go to Hebrews 11.8, we can identify that both Abraham and Peter respond with heroic faith. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we see Abraham receive a divine mission like that of Peter here in the verses we just read. Both have their names changed, huh? Abram to Abraham, Simon to Peter. And it's always to note that every time there's a name change in salvation history, there's an elevation of status, huh? Both, notably, are called rock. If you were to go to Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 2, we read of Abraham being called rock. And both are assured victory at the gate. Matthew certainly wants us to see this, right? He wants us to see that Peter is a new Abraham. I mean, what was his first verse? Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. And the next verse, of course, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was looked upon as the chief patriarch of the old covenant, the old dispensation, the old law. Now we have a new patriarch, 
and Christ called him Petros, or Kepha, okay, rock, a word that literally means uh, stone or sizable rock or sizable stone. Okay, so very important. Now, what about this language of flesh and blood? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, flesh and blood was a Semitic idiom, okay, for human beings emphasizing their natural limitations and weaknesses. I think we can kind of gather this. Here you have the Son of God saying to now Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Now, I want to highlight that verse on this solemnity, because if you do have your Bibles out there, if you can flip to Galatians 1, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 18, and I want to make an important connection for us today, this evening. And this is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer immediately with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And again, I returned to Damascus. Then... After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and remained with him 15 days. Okay, so here you have the language of what? I did not confer immediately with flesh and blood. Now, it's interesting. Some translations leave the word immediately out, but in the Greek, you do have it there, huh? The uthios, okay, immediately. Paul does not deny that he consulted the original apostles about his gospel. He is simply, my friends, underscoring that his certainty about its truth exempted him from the need to do so immediately after his conversion. I do believe that there's a connection here. When our Lord says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Paul also wants us to see that his message is one of divine inspiration. His message is one that belongs to the person of Jesus Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's most fascinating, and I think there you have a very important connection to be had. And, you know, I don't know if there's a lot of commentaries that talk about it. Quite honestly, this is something that struck me, but something I think that uh, should encourage a reflection about why these two men are so important. Now, what's most interesting is when you go down to verse 18 and read, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Gephos and remained with him 15 days. The after three years corresponds to those three verses back in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, when he talks about leaving for many days. Okay, now, where did he go? Well, he says Arabia. And many believe that this suggests that Paul went to the traditional site of Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, right? As, as you know, the place where Moses and Elijah spoke intimately with the Lord. Why would he do that? What is going on here? Here you have this man, as tradition holds, he was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. This was a man who had a muscle-bound intellect, He had the Old Testament on his fingertips. He persecuted the Christians. Remember, he was the one 
in charge of the stoning of Stephen that we read in Acts 7. So why? Because the Christian faith was invading this, this pure Judaism that he had come to know. And so he, he gets knocked off his horse and he now, after his baptism, he has to reconcile this. So yeah, he immediately goes into the synagogues and he preaches the truth about Jesus and son of God, but he was only there for a short while. Why? Well, think about this. He had to reconcile the whole Old Testament with the person of Jesus Christ. He had to make sense of how this man who they call the Nazarene was the fulfillment of the whole prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. So yes, it should make sense to us that this man who we now know as Paul, note another name change, by the way, another elevation of status in salvation history, would go to a place like Mount Sinai for three years. And then I love this. And this is a, an important connection for us. What does he do? He remained with Kephas for 15 days. And it's interesting. The Greek word for visit literally means interviewed as well as made his acquaintance. You know, I think we can play around with this image in our head of Paul asking Peter questions about Jesus Christ. I love that. He's, he's interviewing him, right? He's, he's asking him questions and he's taking notes. I'm sure many notes that had to deal with what he wrote about. Yes, he was divinely inspired, but remember that great overarching principle of how we are called to interpret scripture. Just as Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine, so is the word of God, fully human and fully divine. He was divinely inspired and he wanted us to know that and to see that and to read that, but we must always appreciate the human element of it. He's asking Peter questions for a reason. Now, I know there are a lot of projections as it relates to the relationship between Peter and Paul, especially projections that would suggest they didn't get along, most notably because of what he says just verses later in his letter to the Galatians. You know, Paul clearly rebukes Peter at Antioch, but I want to offer up a, a different response, okay? I want to first read these verses and then kind of respond to them from there. So these are Paul's words in chapter 2, starting with verse 11. But when Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's going on here? Well, Peter was reverting to the custom of traditional Judaism, which discouraged social contact, especially uh, shared meals between Jews and Gentiles. It was feared, among other things, that Gentile food might violate the purity standards of the Torah, i.e. it might be either unclean 
or improperly prepared. This is the rule of Leviticus. So the problem then here is that Peter has already been informed that the Jewish dietary, dietary laws have been set aside in the new covenant, that they've been surpassed in the laws of the new covenant, and that the Gentiles are now welcome members of the family of faith. Those words before them all in verse 14 are very important because it is precisely Peter's authority and influence in the church that made it necessary for Paul to correct him in public. Here you have the first Pope regressing and Paul is saying, wait, look at what you're doing, Peter. Look at the message you're sending. I mean, Peter was one outrageous extreme after another. One minute he's walking on water, the next he's denying Jesus. One minute he's offering up this incredible confession of faith, and the next Jesus rebukes Peter for getting in the way of his suffering. What is going on here? Did Jesus get it wrong with Peter? No. Remember what Jesus said. This is not a church, your church, but the church. That is my church. When we look at the person of Simon Peter, what we are made to be reminded of is his humanity. It is a gentle reminder that in spite of our humanity, in spite of our sins, and in spite of our weaknesses, he is still going to reign. He is still going to work. His regality will still be present. This ought to be a great consolation prize for all of the popes, huh? I can only imagine the weight that one St. John Paul II may have felt or Benedict XVI, or Pope Francis. So yeah, it is very important that we be reminded that it is always Jesus, that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is always standing in the person of Christ. Now, as we circle back to this, this rebuke of Paul to Peter, what I do want us to appreciate is that this isn't necessarily something uh, this rebuke that is that Paul gives to Peter because he doesn't get along with him or he doesn't like him, but rather because he loves him and that he sees the importance of who Peter is. And as a brother in Christ, he understands the importance of being corrected in the name, as he put it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in many ways, it is an example for us in how we ought to be a brother or sister in Christ to one another. He did it in a public way because of his role. But it certainly doesn't take away from the truth that Jesus Christ calls us to, to chasten one another behind closed doors. We always do it out of love, reverence, and humility. In the end, these two men are the indispensable figures because yes, they are symbolic of the hierarchical structure of the church, the regality of the church. And certainly in St. Paul, the missionary breath of the church. But understand this, they are also indispensable because they did not rely on flesh and blood. They understood their humanity. And yes, Peter often <laughs> put his foot in his mouth, but certainly they both were constant in aspiring to the supernatural. And this is what they teach us, to live with one foot here on earth and one foot in heaven. Let us close in prayer. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.